Hello and welcome. This is the Climate Voices podcast and I'm your host Amesa Mukayo. This is a platform where we are unpacking the climate change discourse by breaking down the complicated climate science into a language that is easily understandable for everyone with the sole purpose of breaking the communication barrier that conspicuously manifests in addressing the crucial area of climate action. We bring together scientists, researchers and academics, policymakers and community practitioners and people that I consider champions to have basic conversations and share their success stories and experiences in tackling the climate crisis. On this episode, we're tackling a very sensitive yet crucial topic of the extractive industries and see how they impact societies as well as the environment. So folks, whether you're driving from work or relaxing on the couch after a busy day, hold on and enjoy the intriguing conversation since by the end of the episode, you will for sure get to think about the complex relationship between the extractive industries, our society and the environment. Today, I'm joined on the show by two very interesting guests who are going to help us deep dive into the fascinating and mind-blowing topics of extractives. One of uh, the guests is actually my professor here at the Clark University's Department of International Development, Community and Environment, and and I'm going to let her introduce herself and introduce the other guest, and we'll pick it up from there. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Amesa, for inviting us to be here today. My name is Denise Humphreys Bevington. I am Research Associate Professor in IDCE. Also, I am Co-Director of Extractives at Clark and a Faculty Convener for A New Earth Conversation, also at Clark. And I'd like to introduce our guest. His name is Scott Selwood. He is Lead Policy at um, Oxfam America on Human Rights and extractive industries and uh, does great work and look forward to talking with him today. Thanks so much Denise and and thank you for this invitation to join today. Yeah well Scott maybe um, you can talk to us a little bit about your own trajectory and how long you've worked at Oxfam and then how did you come to work at Oxfam on extractive industries? Absolutely well maybe first For those who don't know, Oxfam is a global organization that really focuses on tackling and transforming the root causes of inequality. And I work on the Extractive Industries Global Program, and so with colleagues in around, I guess, 26 or so countries around the world, we're campaigning for natural resource justice, Uh, so that means we're sort of partnering with local organizations and activists to really hold mining oil and gas companies and governments accountable for respecting rights and uh, ensuring that you know if, when these projects move forward, if they move forward with the consent of communities, that those revenues and taxes and royalties really go where they should go, which is you know to to end education, healthcare, things like that. So I think that's a helpful frame for then how I got to do this work. <laughs> um, I'm originally from Australia. It's another big 
mining country. And before joining Oxfam, I worked as a lawyer representing uh, communities and NGOs who were really, again, using the law primarily to ensure that mining companies, um, you know, the port operators, really the large infrastructure projects in Australia, that those companies were respecting the law, communities were able to participate in decision making and so I did that for a while and I realized that legal strategies have their limits they haven't they play an important role but they aren't the only way in which we can sort of produce better outcomes for communities and better outcomes for the places where they live uh, there are limits legal systems can be really expensive they can be very slow uh, the sorts of changes that you can generate when you win a case, you know, they can take such a long period of time. So I look to see what kinds of other tactics and strategies we could use to really drive change, perhaps drive change even a little bit faster and perhaps a more structural types of change. And Oxfam was one of those organizations that was doing really interesting research, was doing really interesting movement building in different parts of the world. You know, I think the research analysis, the movement building, uh, they're doing really cool some of the public communications campaigns. So really using the full spectrum of influencing tactics that we can use. Some, some litigation, but not as much. Um, and so that really was what inspired me to sort of look at Oxfam and, and, and take a position here with them. You mentioned a couple of things from being a lawyer to now working as a policy a lead for Oxfam. I mean, I've uh, seen some of the work that Oxfam does. So um, i like to touch base on... Um, some of the issues and intricacies around uh, the extractive industries I've seen um, across the planet. Uh, this is a very sensitive area. For instance, uh, where I come from, there are a couple of issues that have been raised around mining and also I look at uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, for instance, where there are a couple of human rights issues, you know, having children working in the mines and how that affects the human rights, for instance, and who benefits from uh, these activities. So I don't know if Oxfam has done some work around that and what can you like to comment about that? Those are great questions. Oxfam's work in DRC has been a little bit more focused on the humanitarian response and sort of some of the peace building um, parts. But certainly in the cobalt producing, cobalt copper producing regions in the south, one of the sort of areas that Oxfam has been doing some work is working with women's cooperatives who are sort of you know, to small, small scale mining. Um, so really looking at a very small part of the, the cobalt supply chain, um, really trying to ensure that those who are participating in cobalt production at a small scale uh, do so under the right conditions. And so that's where the conditions that respect their rights, where there's really solid you know, public health safety, environmental safeguards, but also that those who are engaged in that activity um, and the increasing numbers of women who, who do this, that they're supported to really take advantage of the economic opportunities that that small scale sector provides. And, uh, and so that's sort of one piece of work. But I think the O, in some ways, we've taken that step back a little bit further than for us, a really big focus of our work and sort of one of the most important safeguards that, that we see is really the safeguard around free prior informed consent and so that really the, the in sort of non-technical terms that communities can control whether and how mining activities move forward in their community and sort of have control over sort of yeah, the environmental management side the cultural heritage protection questions about water quality but also get a say in terms of how revenues that these projects generate um, can really meet their 
priority. Thank you. Um, just a follow-up question. I mean, uh, the communities ultimately need to have a voice uh, in coming up with how uh, the activities are done and how that impacts them. You talked about artisanal mining and we see cases of like huge industrial mining and who benefits from that. And I don't think that has been the case in most of the countries you have seen, for example, in governments in Peru, uh, some communities in Kenya, for example, suing the governments because they didn't take action to protect them from the impacts of mining activities. And uh, I made reference to uh, DRC because I've been following up on that and you find there are huge geopolitical uh, factors uh, being in play and how that affects uh, local communities. And somehow they don't even have a voice in what's happening. So is it that the governments are failing to address these uh, activities that are happening? And uh, is it like policies are failing or don't we have enough benevolence? I think, for instance, from the local governments in the past that you've been working. Yeah, big questions. I, I just think of some of actually the work Denise that you've done in the past, in particular around sort of that. I remember that terrific book from a couple of years ago, governing natural resources, mm-hmm. and sort of yeah. I just think that a lot of these institutional failings or shortcomings. I think we have to really take some of those long historical looks at kind of the, the different ways in which elite groups have, you know, negotiated, you know, power over time, and mm. that I think is a still a really powerful explanatory model, honestly. Right. I just want to remind everyone that free, prior, and informed consent is still relatively new as a practice. Right. Um, I had the good fortune of meeting Jorge Dandler, a Bolivian. A scholar who was behind pushing for the first free partner informed consent inside the UN back in the 1980s. And, you know, while governments moved to ratify ILO 169, the original convention on tribal and indigenous peoples, um, there has to be a certain amount of legislation that comes into being to make that commitment real. And governments have dragged their feet. Mm. Um, you know, I I witnessed um, a free, prior, and informed consent uh, process in Bolivia around 2008, 2009. It's one of the first ones that they actually carried out. That's a huge time gap between mm. 1990, when the convention is first introduced to the UN, and, and 2008. So I think um, there's there's many reasons why governments and companies do not follow through with free, prior, and informed consent. There's many reasons why governments and companies do the process very poorly. Um, and as Scott alluded, there's you know mines, oil and gas are some of the most powerful companies biggest revenue generators for governments around the world. There's lots of reasons not to do this. Mm. There's fewer incentives to do this. I want to make a reference to oil and gas exploration. Uh, And I've seen it raise a couple of issues in the East Africa region, for instance, with uh, different governments uh, talking about uh, coming up with the East African um, crude oil uh, pipeline. It's been a controversial issue and trying to look at who is behind that. You've seen, uh, you know, big companies like Total Energies and uh, other Chinese uh, players in, uh, playing a role in that. I mean, we have seen local population in those regions stand up against that and be over, uh, you know, um, concerns about how it's going to impact uh, biodiversity, how it's going to impact the livelihoods of the people. 
but we see that uh, you know going on so and and you made reference to um how these huge multinational corporations play a big role in that so i don't know i don't know if this is the correct way to ask about it are they like a threat to justice for these communities again trying to tie extractives to uh you know a local justice for the local population this is another excellent question um so the work that we did as oxfam sort of focused on in terms of the east africa crew or pipeline mm. was really to go and listen to communities along the pipeline route mm. and to really hear from them kind of their primary concerns um this was before the pipeline had been approved this is before the final investment decision had been made to really elevate the voices of communities down the line who really emphasize questions about water quality questions about land questions about biodiversity conservation and they really tied their, those concerns to their rights to clean healthy environment um things like that and we used that research and raised those voices and took it outside of East Africa and we took the, those concerns directly to Total Energy's headquarters in Paris mm. again and really put those clearly to the company in terms of the human rights risks of that project um and we were able to secure some important commitments from the company about that which we've been since then really trying to uh, document and make sure that we hold that company accountable to those commitments and i think that that approach we want to we continue to do that approach and i think for us that's the way in which we will support those local environmental justice movements so at the moment we're talking about uh, just energy transition at the global setup but again seeing all these companies for instance um, shortage of oil uh, and gas from uh, russia we have seen you know uh, for the for example the european union trying to rush to Africa and having all these bilateral negotiations and uh, trying to invest in all these fossil fuels in Africa for instance are we achieving anything at the moment if we are talking about just energy transitions because they come with the promises with, uh, that you are for these resources for example the oil and gas deposits in Tanzania or in Uganda and you know promising the people that you going to pull yourself out of poverty and this is where the cases of historical injustices of the global north versus the global south comes in where for example the countries in the global south are trying to use their natural resources to pull themselves out of poverty but at the global setup again in in line with the Paris agreement we're talking about just energy transition trying to fully shift to renewable energy so how again are we going to achieve this if some players from the global north are moving in with the promises of development in the global south but locking them in dependency again of the fossil fuels that we're trying to move away from i think that's a great observation um i think what we're seeing you know is short termism right and there are a number of countries who are being pushed to develop their fossil fuels um certainly in africa also there's a big oil field in guyana mm. in the caribbean um and there's a rush headlong into getting that field up and operating so the thing about extractive industries is that when you commit to oil or to natural oil and gas or to minerals you develop a certain lock in to that commodity for a long period of time your infrastructure gets developed around that commodity your regulatory framework 
your budgets, and you create political alliances, as, as we talked about earlier, around mm. these commodities. And so you're absolutely right. Countries should be concerned about those kinds of short-term decisions because they can then preclude developing other options, more renewable, cleaner options going forward. But um, I'll let Scott also address that one. Africa is certainly a place where we're seeing this. No, absolutely, Denise. And you know, knowing that most of the fossil fuels that have been discovered today need to stay in the ground if globally we are to sort of have a good chance of staying under one and a half, two degrees of warming. And that's, that's pretty important to hold on to that sort of vision of what needs to stay on the ground. I think some of the tools that we've been trying to explore and particularly around new oil and gas projects, and it's really about bringing greater visibility to these sorts of questions that Denise is framing about kind of the lock-in, the, the price it's actually going to cost countries to continue with certain projects and what that, you know, the sorts of decisions that that then excludes in the future. Things like contracts, the contract transparency is a really fundamental ask in many ways that we are really pushing hard for at a global level and that's, and even maybe taking a step earlier and saying, look, you know, negotiate the fiscal terms of projects uh, in the open uh, with public scrutiny um, to sort of look at the timing and magnitude of when potential future revenues are going to come in. And I think that a lot of these projects don't stack up once you start to bring that type of scrutiny mm -hmm. to them. For these reasons, that you, you lock countries into certain pathways, you Often a lot of countries are really highly indebted and so therefore these future revenues that they're promising for development outcomes are actually being just used to service existing debt. And so then you start seeing kind of the, the revenue risks of these projects, not only the climate risks of these projects. And I think when we put both of those things together, I think many, many of these projects sort of in some ways sort of taking it was it the Empress and Nuclear, so that's the reason. So that's sort of one of the ways in which we're approaching it. I think the other side of the transition, which I know that we'll be talking about sort of later today and tomorrow, is really around the decarbonizing of energy and transport systems and the mineral intensity of that side of kind of the climate justice equation. Can I just add one thing I think that should really be on our agenda around these mm. big projects is companies like to use confidentiality clauses mm. so that things remain sort of under wraps, that few people have access to actually seeing the terms of the contracts. And that includes communities whose representatives are negotiating with the companies or with governments. I think this practice is something I would love to see really challenged. And when we talk about you know, creating more transparency around the contracts, I think that will go a long way in helping weaker governments um, you know, negotiate on a more level playing field. I've seen the same thing in Kenya, for instance, where the public was demanding to see the terms of negotiation between Kenya and the Chinese government around a, an infrastructural uh, project. That's part of you know, demanding for accountability because the governments are there to serve the people. But most of the time, we don't even see that happening. How do we ensure that what you have been talking about, like what you have, you have both mentioned, is that most of the times the communities um, are not even involved, or if they're involved, they don't actually have the agency to influence the decisions that are being made. So what are some of the ways, for instance, from your experience that you can make sure that the communities are actively involved in the decisions which are made around extraction of these resources and how the government follows up, you know, in terms of implementation of those? Well, you know, this is a, this is a struggle 
And um, FPIG is one mechanism that's open to communities, but to a subset of communities. So it's important to remember that in the context in which I work in Latin America, it's only open to indigenous and traditional communities. And those communities have to be legally recognized by the government. Otherwise, the government will not carry out that process. We also have an erratic use of the process. So some sectors, infrastructure, doesn't like to hold FPIC processes and only under duress seems to be now offering that process um, around the building of waterways, dams, and others. And it's been used for a long time in the natural uh, gas and oil industry, but less so in other. Um, I want to say in the Latin American context, one thing communities have done is not wait for the government to come to them. They create their own referenda on um, a project and then say that they'll hold it independently. And I remember Oxfam and Great Britain supported one of the first such um, referenda in Peru back in, what was that, the early 2000s. So communities can also take it into their own hands and organize their own mechanism for deciding what the community wants to support. It doesn't have to be undertaken by the government or, or they don't need to rely on the government or corporations um, and be invited in. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that, Denise. I think that the community protocols work, I think, is really, really exciting. So sort of that as an organizing strategy um, that brings communities together around a common vision for what, how so their common vision for the future uh, that's really tied to the sorts of infrastructure projects or the sorts of economic activities that they see as being really important. And specifically tying that to when and if companies come so that communities can be ready with their own protocols for how they want to be engaged. I think that's one piece that's incredibly powerful. And I think we're seeing one more, including outside indigenous communities, which I think is really, is really crucial and powerful. It also helps hold communities together. That's also something we've seen because Unfortunately, companies in lots of different places have used different tactics to undermine, to divide, so that, so that there's no longer a unified front when it comes to a negotiation with a really powerful multinational. And I think that that's, again, these protocols and different activities that can really hold communities together is, is really fundamental because they need to be ready for the sorts of undermining tactics that companies have used in the past. I would say, secondly, you know, I think our work around the, the community-based human rights impact assessment process, sort of an applied research or participatory research process, in some ways was, is designed to do something similar as well. It's about building capacities and strengthening sort of existing activists or leadership within communities uh, and using this tool of, you know, doing an analysis of a project that's coming thinking through kind of a human rights lens to that, how that might differ from Maybe just thinking about in terms of environmental impacts or other social impacts, but like looking at it through the lens of, of human rights. Again, I think that that can be a really powerful organizing model. Yeah, different things like that. I think we've, I think we've also seen good examples of using art and, mm. and, and artistic, so artistic endeavors, which I think try to achieve the same outcome, which is strong agency in communities that can withstand and can negotiate with multinational companies that come with 
incredibly sophisticated teams of lawyers. Yeah, yeah. And community relations people. You're also talking about this in emphasis on, uh, you know, trying to enable a just transition. So do you think it's a, it's a possibility to have this kind of transition? At the moment, I mean, we have, we have been talking about the timeline of 2050, moving to net zero. But is it is it actually a possibility? Yes, try to be optimistic. Mm. Um, even though there are obviously lots of examples mm. of being pessimistic, we think it's possible. We think, at least from the mining side, probably three core parts to the that are necessary, I suppose. One is around reducing future demand for new mining. I think that that needs to be something that's front and center of, of when we're looking at the next decade. Really interrogating the demand projections of minerals, um, looking at all the alternatives to reducing, to taking the pressure off communities. Yeah, number one, we have to reduce the demand for new mining. Secondly, we need to see what, tackle the dissent question and ensure that companies make public commitment. And thirdly, I guess this is part of sort of the, there's such, been such a lost trust, maybe never was trust, but certainly a trust deficit when it comes to relationships between communities and companies. Very much a very clear historical record of why, but a lot of communities are still living through the, the, the toxic legacies of past mining. And when new companies move in, the need to take account of those legacy issues, both companies and governments, and recognise that rehabilitating addressing those legacies is absolutely fundamental part of the just transition. I, mean, I was in South Africa recently and you know we had a researcher from Zambia who was you know talking about some, some new epidemiological research that had been done and again 25 years after a mine had closed, heavy metals were still in the blood of these community members. We've seen that in Peru, we've seen that in Peru, we've seen it all over the place. And so that has to be front and center as well. Um, but I think we can do that. I think if we can get some those three elements together yeah, I, I just want to pick up that point around the environmental legacies and what that means for communities' abilities to adapt and, and manage climate change. I think here we have a really serious situation because communities in mining areas are often water short and then we have aggravated conditions of too much waterfall or rain or too little and now we we have communities that have no clean fresh water and this is not something governments prepared they have not set aside the kind of funding to remediate and to help communities through this process so i i am also hopeful around the just transition but i think this is the time when we all need to step up and pressure much harder based on what we have learned over the last 25 years uh, to pressure for um, much more work around contamination and remediating contamination and ensuring that communities can suffer Thank you so much both for your interesting contributions uh, around the topic and for you know emphasizing that there is hope and uh, looking at the more optimistic uh, side of it. So um, as we come to the end of this, I'm just going to ask if the couple of challenges that you've experienced in, in your work, if you've been working in this for some time and also Professor, you, you, you've been working, you mentioned you've been working in Latin America. What are some of the challenges that you have uh, experienced that, a, a 
opposed by the extractive industry, for instance, on communities? Well, um, the first thing I would say is mining companies are a bit better about working with men and women and understanding gender dynamics in mining areas, but there's a lot more to still do. Women tend to carry much more of the burden related to mining and receive far fewer of the benefits including having a voice in what's happening in their community. So I, I worry about that going forward. As I mentioned before, I worry about accumulated mining waste and the potential for some pretty disastrous results, especially if we have prolonged droughts or, or episodes of too much rainfall. And, and we have the mix of tame ponds and um, not well-managed uh, mining landscape. That's on my list of concerns. And I think this new mining boom that we're seeing around renewable energies um, opens up new areas and new forms of mining. And those communities may not be well-prepared for what's coming. So those are kind of my list of worries going forward. Perhaps add two more to both, but I think those are as well as 100% spot on. One of my concerns is around the way that sort of the imperative of climate change and climate action, and it definitely ties the things you're saying to me, about that that imperative to act is going to insulate projects from screening. And I think we're already seeing it happening all over the world. And so I think that's a, a huge challenge. And the, in some ways, related to that, of course, is what, by insulating projects from scrutiny, that puts additional pressure on activists, human rights defenders, environmental defenders, land defenders, who are raising important questions about people's rights, these questions about water, waste, who has a voice, uh, who's going to shape these decisions. And we've seen that these defenders are already under threat all around the world. In fact, there's a probably it's the riskiest work you can do. And so that human rights defenders, the risk to them, the risk of violence, intimidation, threats and harassment, assassinations, like that, I mean, that people, that's real for a lot of activists around the world. And I think that climate change adds a new layer of climate action to complexity for that. And so I would, I think for us, it's really ensuring that climate action, because I don't think they're in, in, um, incompatible we can have both. Um, and I think that, that getting that message across so that it's heard by decision makers. And when I when we speak to the US government, for example, we're constantly hearing it's about trade-offs. And our deep concern is of course we're not trading off climate justice for human or social justice. Um, and we can achieve both of those goals. But as Cindy said, I mean we're gonna have to push harder perhaps than we have before and use many more of the strategies, both the power um, that to hold Companies accountable, hold accountable. One last parting shot. Anything you want to say to the listeners? I mean, you've already said this hope, but is there anything specific you want to say to them? Well, I would just say watch this space and, and listen to Omesa's podcast because he's always bringing great folks onto his podcast and it makes us think about what's happening. And so tune in and, and follow the space. And just also thanks to Scott Selwood for coming to Clark. Um, this is such a great experience. And um, I hope to see everyone tomorrow at his public lecture. Yeah, thank you so much. Anything you want to say, Scott? Thank you, so, thank you so much for, for inviting me to, to this podcast. I'm really, really thrilled. Um, hopefully we can have an opportunity again at some point um, to invite me.
thank you so much again uh, for spending some time to do this and for your amazing contributions and for your insights and i emphasize that as they say as both the guests say let's all take initiative because there is hope like they have emphasized there is all hope it's not about despair and pessimism there's always hope so the planet and uh, everyone all the communities depend on us on each of our individual actions so let's each do all those uh, you know small activities that we think they're small but they actually make an impact yeah so until next time i've been your hosts and this is the climate voices podcast thank you so much